0: Now, a lot of times we don't want to commit and we won't make a promise. I remember my kids, you know, mom, dad, we want to go to so-and-so. We only want to go to Six Flags or whatever. Will you take us to Six Flags? Well, we'll think about it. No, mom, promise. <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking somewhat about promises today. And I wanted to start and kind of finish with an illustration that I kind of like, Okay. Now here's the illustration and I need to pick somebody from the audience and and I didn't clear this with him, I hope this is okay. Dub, hey brother, I'm gonna use you an illustration. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to come up here. I'm not gonna embarrass you, I promise, okay? But here's the deal, I'm gonna make you a promise. I promise that before this service is over, I'm going to give you $5, is that a deal? All right, (laughs) no problem. (laughs) All right, we're talking about promises, and in Scripture, God makes promises. He makes promises to people. I think that's pretty cool. So we're going to talk about some of those promises. Before the Exodus, God made certain promises to Abraham and Sarah concerning a land that God would give to the people who were descended from Abraham and Sarah. Now, this was a promise. They didn't have this land uh, in their lifetime. They only got just a tiny little footprint in this land. For the most part, it, it was a promise to future generations. But God made this promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son and they would have descendants. And this child was a miracle child in himself, Isaac. And then he would have Jacob and then Jacob would have 12 sons and they would become 12 great tribes. And they would be a nation. God would create a nation from this family. Before he'd been working with all people and they hadn't responded. So God has a new plan. And he creates the nation of Israel, not just for Israel's sake, but ideally so that all the world could see what it was like for people to have a relationship with God. And if they followed God, to be blessed by God. And once they are blessed by God, people would look at that and they would say, wow, that's what it's like to have a relationship with God. Well, 430 years passed and because of a famine, about 70 or so of Abraham's descendants traveled to Egypt where there was food and where God had sovereignly established Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And they went there. And so they're in Egypt. They're in the delta of the Nile. They're in this place, which was wonderful for uh, for herds, which they raised herds. And so they are there, but they grow and they multiply. I mean, you start having 12 12 sons and one daughter, I mean, you multiply pretty quickly. (laughs) And over 400 years, they multiplied greatly. And God was dealing with them, and he made a promise that he would give them a land. So it was like Egypt was the incubator for this nation. And so God is growing them to the point where they can be a nation. They're Some people would estimate 3 million. I'm not exactly sure how many, but there were a lot of people in this nation of Egypt. And so centuries passed and now it's time. This is the time God has picked to give the land of Israel to the Jewish people. He's given the people that existed there centuries to repent of their sins, but it had only grown worse and worse and worse and worse. Horrible. And so God is judging them at the same time he's bringing Israel to the land to be blessed. Well, every nation has to have borders. What were the borders? We've actually been hearing about those. The borders were from the river to the sea. You know, it's very interesting. You hear that a lot. You hear it on college campuses. People went and did an interview and they said, do you know what that is? Which river? I don't know. (laughs) Which sea? I don't know. (laughs) Now they're chanting it, but they don't know. But those actually are the borders that God gave to the nation of Israel. and the, The borders are the River Jordan and the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so that space in there was designated by God to be what we call the promised land, right? God promised it to these people. Well, while they were in Egypt and they multiplied and they became so numerous, a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph came up and he enslaved the people, and he put taskmasters over them, and they would whip the people trying to get them to give more and more free labor, slave labor. And so as a result of this, these Jewish people cried out to God, Oh, God, please look upon us with favor. Please help us. And God heard their prayer. And God sent a deliverer who was that deliverer. Moses. God sent Moses. And Moses obeyed God and delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he didn't do this under his own power. God showed his mighty arm, a symbol for his power and his strength and his ability to perform miracles. And he crushed this most powerful nation. And for all the years of being worked as slaves without pay, God worked a miracle there too. God predisposed the minds of the Egyptians. And he said to the people Israel as they're exiting, go to your neighbor and ask them for gifts. And God put it on the hearts of the people to give. And they gave and they gave gold and silver and other things. And to me, this seems quite appropriate. God is compensating them for all the years of labor that they got no pay for. God is into his own form of social justice, I think. So uh, they left Egypt, and the book of Exodus is about that. The word Exodus is a Latin word, and it means going out. They left Egypt. And when they came to the sea, and some people say the Red Sea, others say the Bitter Lakes, whatever sea it was, they came to that and there was no passage. And Pharaoh back in Egypt had thought about it. And he said, Man, I don't want to lose all that free labor. He sent all his armies, his chariots to go chase after them. And so they look up and, and there they are, the people that oppressed them for centuries. And they're coming back. And they want to put us back in slave labor or kill us. And so their back is against the wall of water uh, against the sea. And in front of them, they see this army and God did another miracle. And as I've said, I think there are two great miracles in the old Testament. One is creation. And the other in my estimation is the exodus. And in the exodus, God did a miracle. He, he delivered the people. He held back the Egyptian army so they couldn't attack. And all night long, this great wind blew. And if you can imagine a sea being parted so that there's a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. And all night it blew. And, you know, the text says that they passed through on dry ground. Pretty Amazing. So they make it to the other side. Then the Egyptians, the soldiers, the chariots, they say, go after them. And so they they go through there and God released his hand and the waters crashed back over. Much to the relief of these former slaves. God had done a great miracle. Israel seemed trapped, but God... (laughs) But God delivered. He held back the Egyptian chariots. And this event became the event to remind Israel what God could do in fulfilling his promises. What God could do, what God did for them. And God has this as an example, as a model, as a blueprint for what he will do in the future. And as I refer to this last time, I'm calling it the new exodus. God has a pattern that he will do something like what he did in the past in the future. God's not finished with his miracles, not finished with saving, not finished with delivering his people. So let's consider this new exodus. Briefly described, the new exodus is the way in which the original Exodus event is used as a model to represent the salvation of Israel from enslavement to foreign powers. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know they have been enslaved to multiple foreign powers, Egypt and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. There's just been their history has been enslavement to other powers, and yet God promises a future deliverance. How does this new exodus measure up to the first exodus? Andrew Brunson defines the new exodus this way, with three things. The widespread and general hope of deliverance and restoration can be divided into three distinct yet interlinked categories, which account for all of the expectations. One, the return from exile. You know, the history of Israel, you know they've been exiled again and again. Two, the defeat of Israel's enemies. And three, the return of Yahweh, God's name, the return of Yahweh to live and reign among his people. Brunson goes on to say that this program presented by the prophets, is for the future. I have a, a friend, Steve Sullivan, and he goes on to say that God's people, Israel, were in bondage because of their disobedience to God. You have to ask, why is God where God's people in bondage? Their disobedience. And he goes on, but He will deliver them in a multifaceted way. And here's. That deliverance. Deliverance in the future will involve redemption, restoration, regathering, then forgiveness, which leads to the presence of God. And I think we would all agree God is not currently present in Israel. They're not in a state of belief. He says this theme of restoration and redemption is also prominent in the provisions of the new covenant. So, the new Exodus and Isaiah. Let's look at this. The new Exodus and Isaiah is a repeated theme. Many see it as the nation of Israel's freedom from captivity to the Assyrian Empire. One of the countries that oppressed and carried Israel away. And I agree that I think it is talking about that in places in Isaiah, but that does not exhaust all of Isaiah's prophecies about this future deliverance. It's an example of it, but not a complete fulfillment. In Isaiah's writings, he makes an emotional appeal to the nation of Israel to repent and to return to God, whose loving kindness will ensure their deliverance. He proclaims that the nation that was once in bondage shall now be in the future like a mighty tree whose top reaches to the heavens. An appropriate description, a perfect image of a free and strong nation, and that's in Isaiah chapter 2. Moreover, Isaiah's new exodus emphasizes the spiritual rebirth of the nation, which would lead them to a relationship with God, and the promise of salvation and redemption. This relationship would be a new level of understanding and forgiveness, allowing Israel to live in peace and harmony with other nations. Question, is Israel today living in peace and harmony with other nations has this promise been fulfilled in our day so far? No, not at all. There is no peace. Many believe, as I do, that there is yet a future day for the nation Israel. If God has made promises in his word, and I see them clearly, and those, those promises have not yet been fulfilled, I believe there's yet a future day in which God will fulfill those promises. He's a promise keeping God. Amen? Well, Steve Sullivan, the fellow I mentioned, he's a friend, and he and I were in the Doctor of Ministry program together at Dallas Seminary. He has a great heart, a trait he developed from 20 years as a pastor. He also has a keen intellect. He went on to do a second doctorate at the University of Wales, where he did his PhD research. And then he did further research, postdoctoral research at the University of Cambridge. Smart guy. And um, he wrote a book based on his PhD research called The Isaianic, and that's Isaiah. The Isianic New Exodus in Romans 9 through 11. A biblical and theological study of Paul's use of Isaiah in Romans. Okay. Several weeks ago, I came down with COVID and not wanting to expose anybody. I stayed at home for a week. And I did probably something similar to what you would do if you were home on break for a week. I I picked up his doctoral dissertation, a 400-page dissertation, and began to read. And I'm sure you would do that, too. Well, Steve took numerous Old Testament quotes found in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And he went back and he looked at the context and he said when Paul quotes and he quotes extensively from Isaiah, almost exclusively from Isaiah. And and why did he do that? Well, he goes back and he looks at where the quotes were and he doesn't just look at that one narrow verse, but he looks at the context. He looks at the verses around that. What is it talking about? Well, it's talking among other things about this new exodus, this future event in which God will deliver Israel. And he says, he looks back at the old exodus and he says, this is the pattern. This is the pattern that God will use to deliver in the future. Well, Isaiah takes the explicit language of the exodus and uses them to predict a new exodus. The old exodus forms a paradigm for what God will do in the future. And this will form the backdrop for what Paul tells about Israel in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Now, keep in mind, what I'm doing here is I'm setting up for next week when we go back to Romans 9. And you see, the problem with just jumping into Romans 9 is so often we miss what Paul is talking about. And so I'm trying to give you a preview to give you some idea, some preparation for what we'll talk about in the coming weeks. Well, scholars widely recognize Isaiah's appeal to the theme of Exodus and the new Exodus. This is this is true. Uh, conservative theologians and liberal theologians, I mean, we don't agree on almost anything, but we agree on this. Uh, dispensational, dispensational and covenantal theologians, different interpretations of scripture, yet they agree, we agree on this idea of this new Exodus. And a good case can be made, that Jesus is presented as the new Moses. Remember who delivered Israel? Moses. Well, Jesus is the new Moses. He's a type of Moses found in the New Testament. The people's hope for deliverance and restoration by this new Moses, however, is dashed. As you look at Isaiah, is dashed and you look at the history of Israel when Christ came, Jesus is rejected and crucified. Oh. Well, furthermore, Rome is still ruling over them, which is not the picture of deliverance that you expect. But the problem was they did not accept Christ as their Messiah. And so they were unwilling. God is offering salvation, but they refused. But God has this eschatological new exodus. Eschatology is the study of end times. It's just talking about the future. And this new exodus has not yet happened, but it will someday. Ever heard that Jesus is coming back? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just as Moses delivered God's people back then, so... Like Moses, Jesus will deliver God's people in the future. It is always good to remember there is a bright hope, isn't it? There is always hope. The Exodus theme is prominent throughout Scripture, but Isaiah offers the clearest expression of it in the Old Testament, a vision in which the restoration of Israel in zion zion is the hill that jerusalem sits on is accompanied by an in gathering of gentiles to worship the lord and that is why paul chooses to look at isaiah because when he writes to those christians in rome you have some jews but you have mostly gentiles you have both groups And Isaiah is foreseeing a time when both groups will worship together. Now let's look at the relationship of the original Exodus with the future one. What is the relationship of the original Exodus with the the prophetic picture as happening in a similar way in the future? And this is what Paul is driving at. When we see patterns in the Old Testament being repeated in the New Testament, the subject of typology often emerges. Baker gives this definition. A type is a biblical event, person, or institution which serves as an example or pattern for other events, persons, or institutions. Typology is the study of types and the historical and theological correspondence between them. And the basis of typology is always the fact that God is at work in history. God is sovereign in history. And so he can give you a preview in the past, and he sovereignly works that out in the future. One cool thing about the uh, form of typology or what types tell us is there is usually an escalation or a heightening from the type to the anti-type. For example, Moses is the type. Jesus is the anti-type or the new type. Well, which is greater, Moses or Jesus? (laughs) Jesus, amen, he is greater. There's a heightening there. We see the pattern in the Old Testament. We see the fulfillment in the new and in the future. Well, since God is Lord over history, he is able to mold and direct history. And that's why there can be an exodus in the Old Testament and a future exodus in which God will work in a similar way. As one writer shares, this new exodus surpasses the old one. While God delivered the Israelites in the Old Testament and the exodus to reveal his glory to the Israelites as well as to the Egyptians, the scope of the revelation of God's glory in the new Exodus is much broader. Isaiah 40, verse 5, all humanity will see it together. Can you imagine that, brothers and sisters? All humanity seeing the glory of God in some form. We hear about it, we read about God's glory, his works of power and might in the Old Testament. And and yet today people look around, they say, well, you know, if the world is such a mess, why doesn't God change it? God must not be here or else he doesn't care. Is that true? No. You say, God, why don't you do something about you know what his answer is? I will. In the future, some point, God is going to deal with the problems of this world. Friends, there is hope because God is sovereign. Now, God is patient. He's not Destroying the world, he he wants people to come to faith in Christ. He wants people to be delivered and to begin to walk with him and experience the joy of the fellowship of God. God is patient. That's why he's not acting right now in judgment. But the things he has promised, he will do. But why does Isaiah use this new Exodus theme? First, the historicity of Exodus helps anchor God's future promise of rescue. By repeating themes and imagery of God's rescue in the past, Isaiah is providing consolation and confirmation about God's plan of rescue in the future. In other words, Isaiah is saying, God has done it before. God will do it again. Now, I want you to say that with me. God has done it before, and God will do it again. We have a miracle working God. I look forward to it. Well, why is this relevant to our study in Romans, which we resume next week? Remember where we left off? Anybody remember the chapter? We finished chapter 8. And then we come to chapter 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11. And a lot of people go, well, I have no clue how this fits into what Paul's saying. It's a, it's a, a strong shift, and I don't understand why. And I'm kind of going to drive this home for a minute. We started in chapters 1 through 4, which speak about sin and salvation. How many people have sinned? Wait a minute. You, you mean I'm a sinner? yeah okay don't throw any stones all right (laughs) we've all sinned and and, and it's great we're not condemning others because man even if i don't do the same things i struggle with my own sin everybody does and that's why jesus christ came because we can't fix ourselves he came to bring salvation so romans chapters one through four talk about sin and salvation, Christ died to pay for all the things we've done wrong. And by trusting him, we received the gift of eternal life. We received the gift of justification. And then chapter five, I see as a hinge between chapters one through four and chapters five through eight, chapter five is the hinge. It talks a little bit about both of these things, but the direction is looking towards sanctification. And so, in chapters five through eight, we deal with sanctification, which is the process of Christian growth. I'm glad that God doesn't just save us and drop us. No, He saves us so we can have a relationship with Him, so we can have intimate fellowship with Him, so we can experience the joy of that fellowship, so we can begin to walk closer to His ways and begin to experience His holiness. Great opportunity. But it's not instantaneous, it's not without slips. Rather, it's an opportunity to grow. I'm not all I should be, but I'm not as bad as I once was. Praise God. Christian growth is the theme from chapters 5 through 8. In chapter 8, you see many, many promises. Like, all things work together for our good. And nothing will ever separate us from our God. Let's look at some of these. Romans 8, 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I got to tell you, that encourages me. I don't know if that lights your fire, but that encourages me. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, no one is more powerful than God. And if he's on our side, it doesn't make much difference who's against us. He's on our side. And verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. God did this great thing for us in giving Jesus Christ to us and allowing him to suffer in our place so that we don't have to. He took our punishment. He took the blame that we deserve. He died as a payment for that can you imagine God doing anything greater than allowing his son to suffer so that we don't have to, if God did this great thing, he'll take care of the lesser things. We all have problems, right? But God is at work and he will deliver us gradually from those problems. He'll take care of us. Um, there was the uh, president of the college I went to, and he wanted to hire his son for administrative position. And his son was a police officer. He was making a good salary. And he said, but, you know, what you're paying me, I don't know. I've got a lot of kids. I don't know if I can feed my family. And the dad said to the son, son, if God saved your soul, can he provide you a hamburger? <laughs> yeah, God can take care of us. And he does. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And friends, this implies that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. In verses 37 through 39, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, wait just a minute. Sometimes I don't feel like a conqueror. How about you? All right? I don't feel like I'm conquering on this particular day. What does the Word of God say? We are more than conquerors. In my own strength? No. In Christ. <laughs> He is the conqueror. He is the coming king, and we are part of his body. We are victorious in him. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These are grand and glorious promises made to you, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. God loves you this much. He made these promises to us. But wait a minute. What if God is a promise breaker? Could we trust him? That's the dilemma of Romans chapter nine. You get these Jews and Gentiles together and they know about Israel and they know that Israel was God's chosen people. And yet right now, at that point in time, there are a few Jews that were saved. Paul is a Jew. But for the vast majority, they're not saved. They have not come to faith in Christ. And people look at that and they say, well, wait a minute. There's all these promises in the Old Testament about restored Israel, about the nation of Israel being brought back to life and fellowshipping with God and God's presence coming in and dwelling with them. And now they're lost. And in fact, in 70 AD, the nation was destroyed. Does God fail to keep his promise? That's the struggle that the Christians were struggling with. And so Paul gets to this point and he's made all these great and precious promises to the Roman Christians and to you, my friends. These are for you. And if God is a promise breaker, where does that leave us? We've got a problem. But if God is a promise keeper, we can trust him. And we have hope. Everything may not be great right now, but there's hope for the future because he has promised to work in the future. If God's promises to Israel have not been accomplished, how can the church be sure that the promises given to it will be accomplished? That's the struggle. And if not only does that impact us, but it also impacts the integrity of God. If God doesn't keep his promises, what does that say about the trustworthiness of God? What does that say about the righteousness of God? God, you made this promise and you didn't keep it. We've got a problem. But if God is a promise keeping God, and I believe he is, and he's made all these promises and they haven't been fulfilled yet. Some of them have, obviously, but not all. Here's what I think happens. I think it's like a time clock. You guys have seen those chess time clocks, right? Two clocks, you tap a button and one clock goes on. You tap the other button and the other clock shifts. One stops, it goes to the other. S- sports teams, the same way, okay? You know, you've got the offense on the team. It's like this. God has said to Israel, Israel, play ball, okay? And Israel is playing ball and through, through Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and through King David, God is using Israel. God is working in Israel through the prophets in Israel, I believe at a particular point in time, personally, I think it was Acts chapter 2, after they had rejected Messiah and crucified Messiah, God says, Israel, stop play. Hits the clock. And instead he says, church, play ball. And it's the church's time. And God is working through the church right now. But someday, friends, God is going to hit the clock once more, and He's going to say, Israel, play ball. And He is going to fulfill His promises to Israel. And that's what He's getting at in Romans 9, 10, and 11. When we ask the question, Did God fail? Did God fail to keep His promises? The answer is he will keep them in the future and that's what Paul closes out this section with. For example, we could ask is Israel lost forever? And he says no. Romans 11:25, Paul speaking. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part And here's the key word, until, until the full numbers of Gentiles, of the Gentiles have come in. Again, that time clock, God has clicked it and Israel is no longer the focus. He's not working through Israel. He's now working through the church. We are no longer in the age of law. We're in the age of grace. We are in the age where God is saving Jew and Gentile through Jesus Christ. And this will continue until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Can you imagine being the last Gentile to be saved? And God takes us up to be with him, and he begins to work with Israel. Look at Romans 11, 26 and 27. And so, all Israel will be what? Saved. All Israel will be saved. Now, is that in the past or is that in the future? Will be, grammar, future, right? It's something that God is going to do in the future. But here's a promise. All Israel will be saved. We look at the Jewish people and say, why did they reject Messiah? There are pockets of Jewish believers even today. But for the most part, they haven't come to faith, but they will. That's the promise of God. And then in verses 26 and 27. And so all Israel will be saved as the scriptures say. And here he goes back to Isaiah again. There will come out of Zion a deliverer. Who's the deliverer? Jesus. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's, That's one of the patriarchs of Israel. He's talking about the nation, Israel. This is my covenant. God has made a covenant promise with them when I take away their sins. So this Moses figure brings in forgiveness to Israel. Now, if someone were to say, hey, Paul, God canceled his promises to Israel. And there are a lot of people that do say that today. What does Paul say? He says, no, no, all Israel will be saved. God will do the saving. This salvation will take away their sins. This salvation will turn ungodliness away from God's chosen people and more. This salvation is rich with meaning found like in this quote from Isaiah chapter 59, what we just read. So Paul's use of Isaiah in Romans shows that there is a future For the nation and people of Israel. Yes, Isaiah spoke of harsh terms of Israel and their sins. Yes, God pronounced judgment on them for their sins and crushed the rebellious nation in 70 AD. But the frequent mention of the Old Testament, of the Exodus, In the New Testament, coupled with predictions that did not happen, in fact, have never happened, means there is a future for Israel. The condition of Israel was not final, nor did God reject Israel ultimately. God has not abandoned his promises to Israel. There were judgment passages, but also texts that demonstrated the gracious plans of God where he would finally accept and restore the nation Israel. And I'm so glad for God's beautiful grace because I get it. I get God's grace and you get God's grace and God's grace is available to the whole world for anyone that would receive the gift of eternal life in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence, and we can only do that if we believe God is a promise-keeping God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. When you need grace, it's available. If Christ gave his life for you, something that big, we know he will extend grace when we ask him. Amen? I'm also glad that we can fully trust in God's promises, promises. To Israel, they were partially fulfilled, but they will be completely fulfilled in the future. And promises to us, the church age believers, God is trustworthy and we can count his promises as true. We don't have to be fearful of God breaking his promise to take us to heaven or to live with him. God has promised, don't miss this. God has promised nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, we're not daisy Christians. Mark, what are you talking about? You know, daisy the flower, we're not daisy Christians. You know, pluck a petal out, he loves me. <laughs> pluck another petal, he loves me not. Pluck another petal, he loves me. Pluck another petal, he, he loves me not. <laughs> God always loves us. If he sent Christ to die for us, we are in Christ, we have his righteousness, we can consider his promises as trustworthy. Amen. Finally, God's faithfulness to his promises to us should impact our faithful service to him. Hebrews 10:23 says, "Let us hold fast the profession of our faith and don't miss this, without wavering. Why? For he is faithful, that promised. Can we trust Christ to be faithful to us? Yes. So let's be faithful to him. Father, every day we see our country drift a little farther away from you. And, and all too often, Christians are tempted to go that path. Or to at least be silent about Christ in fear of rejection and not wanting to be rejected by the world. But Father, you you place the decision before us. You want us to follow Christ with a whole heart, and Father, I pray that you help us to be found faithful, just as you are faithful in keeping your promises to us. Father, help us be faithful to you. In Jesus Christ, I pray it. Amen. Now, before we sing, there's one